0: Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Bose Church. We pray this message blesses and encourages you. If you don't belong to a local church, we would love to see you on Sunday morning. Starting in verse 1. is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ so God can point to us all in future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you didn't take credit you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with you all this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but this Worthy of the Calling series is a series that we are in week three now. Um, We've been going through uh, the last few weeks the, the book of Ephesians. And I'm loving going through this, like just even in my own preparation, even in my own, you know, getting a sermon ready because right out of the gate, what Paul does in Ephesians 1, he's just like here. Like here's God. This is who he is. This is his character. This is his beauty. This is his magnificence. Do you see him? Do you understand him? Do you understand salvation? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit? I, I mean, right out of the gate, that's what he does. And so for me, as, I, as I'm, I've been studying and prepping for these messages, I'm like leaving with, like, with a, just a bigger sense of who God is. And I think that's what Paul's trying to do in Ephesians 1. And, and, and Paul is a man that could be summarized with one word, captivated. Captivated. I mean, this is a man who has been captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ and and he marvels at the beauty of God and that's not some bumper sticker theology that doesn't hold weight, right? Like this is a, he has a real, like yes, God is good, but like he truly sees the goodness of God. He doesn't believe God's good because life has gone awesome for him. No, no, when, when he's writing to the church at Corinth and he says, man, if I fought with the beast at Ephesus, Paul remembers back the full picture of Ephesus. It was like, yes, people are coming to salvation. Yes, it was a great opportunity, but he doesn't forget the opposition that he faced when he was there. I mean, when 25,000 people are in this amphitheater and they're calling for Paul's head, kill Paul. Paul says, man, if I fought with the beast at Ephesus, he doesn't deny the reality of opposition and yet that doesn't one iota deter him from speaking about the goodness of God. And the beauty of God. And that the beauty of God is seen even in the most difficult days. And Paul would say, man, he looks all the more beautiful in the dark in the hard, and dark days of this life. Right, that the beauty of Christ shines most brightly in the darkness. And so this is what Paul is showing us in chapter one. And, and so I hope you've been getting that big picture of God. Uh, I hope you've been getting that big picture of God, because like I said, he, um, when, when Paul is opening up the letter, this is obviously um, passages that theologians have gone to and argued for, and this is, this is theological battleground. But I think so much gets missed when we don't see this as Paul writing to a church and he's opening up with an exaltation of worship. This is a, uh, almost like a song of praise to our king. And so let's not get lost in the debate. The debate is important. It's not that it's insignificant. But what Paul really is doing for his initial audience, they weren't saying, man, this is Paul's systematic theology 101. This wasn't Paul laying down the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. That, that's important, but that's not what Paul was doing. Paul was saying, do you see God, our Savior, for as beautiful as he is? And so, yes, I've described it as a, as a worship song. And, and week one, it's like Paul pulled out the acoustic and he's leading us. And, and, and week two, it's like he turns up the dial, and he's like, man, we should praise all the more. If you really, truly could understand this, he's like, my prayer is that you would, that the more and more you would see and understand him, that you're, the more your worship would grow. And so he's like trying to play, play it even louder. And then this week in Ephesians chapter two, we're going to see almost a, a switch. A, a, Paul goes from talking about the goodness of God to talking about the goodness of God in light of who man is. And so it's now is like he goes from blaring the chorus to saying, here are the verses. Here's why the chorus is so glorious. This is why it's such a beautiful song to sing. Yes, God saved us, but here's how. But here's how. And so that's Ephesians 2 as Paul opens up. Um, Question for you. um, Anybody ever hear of Jeremy Bentham? We got one, Frank. You are such a reader, man. <laughs> he was a philosopher in 1748 through 1832. His name actually appears as an alias on the TV show Lost uh, as the character John Locke. But that, thats not who we're talking about today. We're talking about the real Jeremy Bentham. Um, but th- this philosopher—he's was an interesting guy for more way- ways than just one. Um, but upon dying he left a massive fortune to a uh, hospital in London with a condition. The condition was that Jeremy Bentham would have to be brought into every single board meeting. And so it has been recorded for nearly over over a century, the remains of Jeremy Bentham were rolled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. His skeleton was... Decorated in 17th century garb and with a, with a hat. And all of the meeting minutes for these meetings would state Mr. Bentham present but not voting. So th- this was a joke from, from his philosophy. And today as we approach our text, I think this is what the Apostle Paul is saying about the state of man before grace enters in. That we are present but not voting. That we are present, but not voting until God gave us life. That this is the condition of humanity. Broadly speaking, this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is two sentences. That's it. And in the first sentence, it's, it's verses 1 through 7. And the second is verses 8 through 10. But within the first sentence, the subject is God. God is the subject, and the main verb is gave us Life. And the next sentence really is Paul just explaining how God gave our spirit new life. Um, but so, if the heart of our passage is really, if you could summarize it and say that God gave us life, right? And if that's how the, the literary structure is break, broken down and we, we derive our big idea from that, from our passage, then if God is giving us life, then that denotes that there was an absence of life which most of us would say is, what, it's death. You know, Paul uses that word in our text. Um, And so that's what we're dealing with, that God is giving life to those who are dead. And and so here's our big idea for this morning. We have this as a slide. Humanity is not sick and in need of self-help. Humanity is dead in need of a savior. That's the condition. That's what we're dealing with. Humanity is in need of a but God moment. Like all of humanity, like you, like you have never met an individual, you never met a person that, that's like, I can handle this. No, the, the, the story of humanity is that we are waiting for God's intervention. We are waiting for God to break through, enter in, do what only God can do. Right? That, that's what we're going to see Paul laying out in our text. And so let's look at the first three Else. Now, I want you to see something really important in these first three verses. Notice in verse one, you see this word you, that's singular. And then in verse three, Paul makes a transition to saying all. And so at the very beginning, his, this, this you is in reference to the Gentiles in Ephesus, but the all covers both the Jew and Gentile. And that's important for us to see and understand that who is Paul referring to? Because Paul's not strictly talking about some cannibalistic tribe in the remote parts of the world. Like, like they were once dead in their sins and many sins and their transgressions. Like, like yeah, we, we would all say, yeah, those people definitely are dead in their sin. But Paul here... Then goes to verse 3 and says, hey, before you start letting your minds go and say, yeah, I understand how that community, that I don't really, their sinful pattern, that doesn't really relate to me. Yeah, I get how they're in dire need for Jesus. Paul wants us to make sure that we know that the specific audience he is speaking to is all peoples, everyone. He is speaking to the Republican and the Democrat. He is speaking to the kid that was raised in the church and the adult who never grazed the, the, the doors of a church. There isn't someone so good that would disqualify themselves from this word all. Right? Like, like every single person, doesn't matter how good you are. And, and, and that's why I love when you see this story in John, when, when Jesus is really beginning his ministry. Um, there's this moment where this religious leader named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says, hey, I don't want people to see me here, but, but Rabbi, how could I gain new life and how could I become a, a, a true follower? And Jesus tells him, you need to be born again. He says, hey, it doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter how much of the scriptures you know, you need to be born again. And then in chapter 4 of John, he goes right to this woman at the well, this woman that has, on almost all accounts would say, a pretty um, debaucherous life. And so there isn't someone that's too far away, and there isn't someone close enough that doesn't need Jesus. All are dead in their transgressions and sins. Sin has put everybody into this state. And um, Because I think people who grew up in church who grew up going to Sunday school, going to the OANAs and Pioneers and all those types of kids things and you, and you grow up in the church and, and you start looking at maybe parts of the world and you could can, can easily say, okay, I understand how that community needs Jesus. But do you understand that the church kid needs Jesus just as much? There aren't those that are bad in need of Jesus. All are bad and in a need of Jesus. And, and Paul paints a very bleak picture here and he says this bleak picture is representative of everyone and here are the descriptors dead disobedient many sins obeying the devil refusing to obey God sinful nature needless to say Paul is trying to make sure that nobody's walking around church with a swagger right like anybody if this is your resume and and Paul says hey this is you here you go are you walking around saying yeah that's me no, nobody's walking around holding Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and saying, see how awesome I am? This is what Paul says about me. No, I, I mean, he paints a really bleak picture of those in their state before Christ. Now, it's important, again, that we see Christ as the subject. Christ has been the subject. God has been the subject. Chapter 1 one, well, chapter 2, yes, God's goodness, but it's God's goodness in light of us, we which are sinful. And so with all those descriptors of our condition, Paul shows us that humanity is not morally good. We aren't even morally neutral. And, and um, to quote Miracle Max and the Princess Bride, we were not mostly dead. Right? <laughs> I mean, if, you, if we just take this word dead, that denotes permanency. You, you're, you're not going to better your condition in death. You're not gonna become better dead, right? I mean, are we all clear on that? Which means there wasn't something you or I could do to change this. You can't progress as a dead person. And so uh, here was my question. If, if you and I were to go to a nearby cemetery after church today, we just said, hey, let's go, let's go to White Chapel. And the task that you and I have been given is that we need to go start raising dead people from the grave. Here's my question for you. Who would you take with you? What would your plan be to accomplish that goal? Right, I, I, I mean, are you, are you gonna show up to the grave and are you gonna come with a, a, a bottle of ibuprofen or essential oils? Right? Are you going to start digging up the grave and saying, if I can just give this dead guy some ibuprofen 800, or maybe if I just flood his coffin with doTERRA, like we're going to get him to come back to life? I mean, none of us actually think that that would happen. Right? I'm not expecting you to come up with an elaborative plan that could actually do the impossible. Right? I I mean, that would be an impossible task. There's nothing, you, you could take. The, the greatest of surgeons, you could take the greatest of doctors, specialists. Not one of them are capable of doing anything to somebody that's six feet below the ground. None, none of them have a, a skill set that, that could do anything otherwise. And, and, and so to try to, do, uh, to accomplish this task, it would, it would be everything that you could do, everything that you would try would be laughable. Right? I mean, just picture that person sticking a an ibuprofen pill in the dead person's mouth as if that's going to do anything in that moment. And yet, many people treat the spiritual life this way. Like, like, hey, I'm gonna gain new life in Christ by attempting to be moral. I'm going to try to gain new life in Christ by doing humanitarian work. And and I'm going to try and gain new life by being a good person and not realizing that every time we try to do anything outside of Christ to gain spiritual life, then, then what that looks like is a person trying to do the do- doTERRA ibuprofen thing. That's the lunacy of it. Like, again, we need a but God moment. And so Paul wants to see that our condition as humanity is that we are utterly incapable of changing our state. And we got to that state because of three things in our text. Because of the world, because of Satan, and because of our spirit, ourselves. And I love how bleak this picture is. I love how bleak the picture is because we have to see it for as bleak as it is or the rescue won't look as beautiful as it is. Right? If we think that we're just better dead or that we're kind of dead and if we just think of it as like a we're, we're, we're kind of good, well, then we'll not see Jesus and his rescue for as beautiful as it really is. And, and I love how bleak the picture is because there's this argument made in the, in the psychological world on whether or not we're corrupt because of our nature or because of nurture. And if you see these three things that Paul blames our corruption on, he blames it on Satan, the world, and ourselves. And so the answer is both. Um, no one with a pulse is trying to argue whether or not man is corrupt. I think the thing that ponders the minds of humans is how did we get there? Whether you know God, whether you have a relationship with him, we as humans, we've tried to figure out why is humanity broken? But nobody's denying that we are. And so if we had the ability to change the state of our condition then follow me here, then Christ didn't need to go to the cross. The cross is not necessary if you and I could fix our condition. Christ didn't need to die. I don't think God the Father was willy-nilly in determining whether or not he should send his son to go die on the cross. Like, hey, if there was multiple options, uh, yeah, my son has to die or, or my son doesn't have to die. I, I think the Father's gonna say, okay, let's go with the option where Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. Um, if the cross wasn't needed, then Christ himself would have refused lest we've forgotten the words of Jesus in the garden, where in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, it says that he went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it possible, let this cup of suffering, the cross, be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. If the cross was not necessary, Jesus would have refused. If there was another way, let's do it that way, but I'm gonna submit to you, Father, in this, And so do you see the necessity? Do you see the necessity that Christ's work on the cross declares to us our inability to fix ourselves? Otherwise, Jesus doesn't go. Otherwise, there was another way. And if we don't see this painting for as bleak as it is, these next few verses don't have the same power. Paul doesn't shy away from speaking about how broken we are because it was then missed. How beautiful our rescue is. Look back with me at verses four through seven. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus Verse 4, I don't know if it could begin with a if there's a better word in the scriptures than the three-letter word that verse four begins with. But. But. Because yes, verses three, one through three, it's like, man, this is bad. Like Paul just gave you the complete bad news. He gave you the diagnosis, and it's like, man, it's not stage four cancer. He's like, you're already gone. You are dead in your transgressions and sin. And guess what? The world ain't gonna make you any better. There's not a solution in the world to make you any better. You're going to need some kind of miracle intervention, but, but there's good news. But the story takes a turn. There's an interruption to the story. How many of us are glad that God has interrupted our story? Hallelujah. Praise God. Can we get a little Pentecostal and clap? Come on. This epic story that's going on in the cosmos. Where where death has been the story, where where the, the climax of the story is that there's this they're going that is leading to this downward spiral. But God shows up into the story. God takes what's ugly and he makes it beautiful. He takes what's chaotic and he brings order. And he doesn't take sick people and make them better. He makes dead people come alive. Hallelujah. This is the continuation from chapter one when Paul was writing and sharing, hey, God has a plan in which sinners get saved. He's like, man, isn't that amazing? I mean, let's exalt God for the fact that he delights in this. That's what he says. He delights to save sinners this was something that he wanted to do. That's all in chapter one. And here, Paul shows you the compulsion because of his great love for us. Not because of his love. Paul adds a measure. He adds a volume of love because of his great love for us. And so before you might sit there and you think that, that your rebellion racked up too much of a bill, before you start thinking that you're the asterisk and the exception and saying, okay, yes, God's love for these people, but but if you knew how bad I was, no. Paul says, you, you, you need to see, because of his great love, he is rich in mercy. He talks about a wealth. He talks about a great wealth, and God's wealth affords us the ability to become alive, right? That's the first sentence, God made us alive. And so this is the kind of wealth. God's wealth is the kind of wealth that Bezos, Musk, and Gates could only dream about. No one beyond God has the wealth to make dead people come alive. Like Bezos is not going to get to the net worth where he finally unlocks the ability to purchase a pill to make dead people come alive. That's only God. That's only God. God, he has the ability to forgive sin. He has the ability, because of his rich mercy, to forgive sinners. Now, remember the audience to whom Paul is writing, people who gave up the greatest of their possessions. We saw that in Acts 19. When, when Paul comes to Ephesus, he preaches the gospel, and it says they divulge their practices. They, they burn their books, and, and they actually put a volume, I mean, millions of dollars of objects just got burned up with people saying, "Okay, we're 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 laying it all down so that we might know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus." And so Paul says that God, in return, right, these people that have surrendered their lives to Him, they haven't given up anything because Paul says that um, in other scriptures that that will call us co-heirs, that we might see how much better He is. I mean, did you see that? He says that in the coming. Ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Verse 7 coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. That you're you're never going to come to the the scales and say, Oh gosh, did we sacrifice too much for him? Were our lives too important? Could could we have gotten more? Could we have had ours? That I make a mistake? You'll never get to that point. You're going to be able to see the richness of his kindness, which is amazing. There's nothing better than life in Christ. Pick back up with me in verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, two sentences are all highlighting this beautiful thing called grace. Grace being it wasn't something you deserved, it wasn't something that you earned, like, the, like salvation is a God thing. And so Paul is stressing to his readers here, listen, your salvation wasn't brought to you on any merit of your own. God, it wasn't because you grew up in the church, it wasn't because you were prettier than others. It wasn't because you were funnier than others. That, that, that's not how God merits these things. God saves sinners because he's great, not because we are. When, when God called the nation of Israel, he says, I didn't choose you because you were great in number. There wasn't something so spectacular about Israel that God says, yes, finally, people I could love, Oh, God did chose Israel as a demonstration of his goodness, not theirs. and so there's not a criteria out there that makes some people more prone to God's grace than others. The family table the, 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 the table in the kingdom is not the cool kids' club right i got to, I don't know what your high school moment was where you know lunchtime was definitely a segregated time where it was like Look at the the cool crowd. Look at that table. That's not the kingdom. That's not the table. It's not people that were, wow, man, those Baptists were perfect. Or, Man, those Pentecostals really understood the Holy Spirit. Let's give them a front row seat. No, that's not the criteria. The chief of sinners was the Apostle Paul. God loves demonstrating his mercy towards sinners. He loves coming for the sick. It wasn't the healthy that he came for. And so when you do get that diagnosis and you get the, hey, here you are. This is a pretty bleak outlook. You get to look at this and have all the more reasons to boast in God's goodness and his kindness towards you. Yes, I was dead in my sin and my transgressions, but God, who is rich in mercy, didn't look at the bill and say, God, it's a little steep. No, he says, I will pay for it on the cross of Jesus Christ, God who's rich in mercy. Now, um, look at verse 8 with me. When Paul writes, it is the gift of God, what is the it referring to? Well, there's only three plausible things that this could be. It could be grace, it could be salvation, or it could be faith. And we need to have grace for each other because this question has troubled and caused quarrels amongst theologians for millennia. People have argued, what is this it in reference to? Could it be grace? Could it be salvation? And could it be faith? And though um, <clears throat> the best that I could understand, I'm starting to, lose, starting to lose my voice, got a little too Pentecostal today. The best that I can understand this with my finite mind is that I think it's all three. That I think grace is a gift from God. I believe salvation is a gift from God. And I believe faith is a gift from God. But I also believe though faith is a part of the gift, I do believe that faith is a a response on our behalf. But it's important how we frame and think about faith because if we don't understand faith as a gift from God... We will treat salvation as transactional, as if God brings the grace and we bring the faith. And salvation is possible because we, us dead people, started playing a part in it. And So check this out. Um, this would not have been a leap for the Christians in Ephesus to think about faith as a gift from God. Um, when Apollos was preaching the gospel in Ephesus, look at what happened. Back in Acts chapter 18, verse 27 Um, He was leaving in verse 27. It says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. Who, through grace, had believed. This was belief and grace aren't divorced from each other. Salvation was only possible because of God. To God, and Paul wants to make sure that no one is walking with swagger. Not because Paul has a low view of man. I think Paul truly understands the greatness that man is made in the image of God. That we have a elevated position above the rest of the order in the world. That's why there's not a debate that if you if you lose your job and, and finances get tight and we do, you start debating who's going to eat first, you or the dog. There's not a debate. You've been made in the imagio Dei, the image of God. You have inherent worth above the rest of creation, right? That that, that, that humanity has an elevated worth because we and we alone have been made in the image of God. In the image of God, God created humankind. And so um, I don't think when Paul paints the bleak picture of man's condition, I don't I think it's because he has this low view of God. I think it's because that he has a knowledge of the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, our King. And so, yes, does Ephesians 2 speak to the sinfulness of man? Absolutely, it does. But I think that if you truly understand the big idea that God is making sinners alive, then the position that we come to in Ephesians 2 is not, whoa, I'm a sinner. It's, whoa, Christ our Savior. Would that be the heartbeat that we approach Ephesians with? Not with this, oh, I'm the sinner. It's like, yeah, you are. But, man, do you see him? Do you see his rich kindness? That is the emphasis here. And not only does he save sinners, but he uses them, that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. The story gets better. He saves us, and he uses us, and he invites us to play a part in his mission in the world. That he brings you into a family that has family business. That he has work that he's accomplishing in the world, and he's going to allow us, those who are um, in Christ, those who have a relationship with him, he's going to call us to ministry, and he's going to call us to share this beautiful grace to the world around us. That we might testify to his goodness to those in our, in our world, our lives get to testify to grace. Um, if you've never responded to grace before, if you've never taken a step of faith, um, it's a gift. That we're not asking you to, to come forward. We're not asking you to get yourself cleaned up before you come to Jesus. I don't know what it is you might be walking in. I don't know what kind of behaviors you might be uh, addicted to, uh, I don't know, any, any of that. Um, but Jesus' invitation to come, it, we're not expecting you to clean yourself up. It is a gift from God, new life. But God would love to interrupt your story. God would love to interrupt your verses 1 through 3 with his, but God who is great in mercy, rich in mercy and his loving kindness. He wants to experience a love relationship with you today. And so if you never have, I just want to give you that opportunity today to respond in that way. The scriptures would call us to confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and we could have true, everlasting, eternal life, that we could have our story interrupted And we could be recipients of God's great love and his kindness towards us. So um, there's no magical word or some cheat code to unlock this. It is the free gift of salvation. And So that's your invitation today if you never have before. Uh, Let me close this in prayer.